Hello and welcome to the Science Set Free discussion with myself, Mark Vernon and Rupert Sheldrake. Hello, Rupert. Hi, Mark. We wanted to talk today about common prayer. And perhaps first of all, I should just say that this is common, not as in basic sort of introduction, introductions, sort of introductory prayer, um, but common as in shared, held in common. Um, as in indeed the Book of Common Prayer, which was the idea that uh, the nation could be held together not by doctrinal beliefs so much uh, or ideology, um, but by a shared practice, the shared practice of prayer in Elizabethan England. Um, that was then. Now, um, I wonder um, how important common prayer in this other sense is to what we're talking about more generally, which is this return to God. Um, and my sense is that it is actually really very crucial. Um, but because perhaps people find it difficult to walk through church doors or feel that churches aren't really places for them anymore, um, it's something that's missing, actually. People are missing out on something. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to discuss what we find in common prayer, in, in our practices of common prayer, um, to suggest that it might be a really important part of, you know, rediscovering the divine in life. Um, one way that um, I think perhaps um, anyone who's done some meditation will get some appreciation of um, is the notion of the Sangha in Buddhism, um, a very important part of Buddhism, the idea of collective meditation. Um, and you know, maybe as a starter, we could think about what that kind of collective practice brings. Um, I think for myself, there's, there's the practical idea that it's just the discipline kind of getting there because other people are going to be there um, helping to hold you there while you are there. Um, whether it be a weekly meeting that I go to or um, retreats that I go on, there's something about the collective that just helps you stay in what you want to do. Um, but there's also something about the energy um, of the group, which I think is very powerful. Um, you know, if you do regular um, collective meditation, you'll just realise that sometimes it feels a bit restless in the room, and but every so often there are moments of really very profound stillness, and there's something that, because that's being shared, um, that that's an experience that you can uh, participate in, but that's in a way at least different, if not more profound, than an experience you might have on your own. Um, that that'd be one sense for me in which this mm. common notion is really valuable. Yes, I agree. I think that doing things together it brings this sense of uh, amplifying concentration, helps one to stay in the practice more than if you're just trying to meditate on your own uh, which of course many people do but doing it together enables it sort of reinforces it it's a kind of collective reinforcement as it were peer group help or uh, assistance and that can work with silent meditation as in Buddhist retreats it can also work very powerfully when people chant or sing together and my wife, Jill Purse, who gives chanting workshops and uh, regularly has groups of people chanting together, um, finds, as the people who go to these groups find, that by chanting together, um, it has much more effect than if you're just doing it on your own. Um, and in fact, by meditation out loud, um, by chanting a mantra out loud it, it's much easier to get into the concentration than doing it silently because doing it out loud with other people doing it you're making the sound, you're hearing the sound you're hearing others doing it you're coming into resonance with other people through chanting at the same time um, 
And this has a more powerful transformative effect than just doing it on your own. So I think it's generally the case that doing things together, and after all we're social, we're a social animal, we're a social species, doing things together can be much more powerful. Like dancing together is obviously more uh, enjoyable and effective than dancing on your own. Um, And even though many forms of modern dance don't involve group dancing or circle dancing or even couples dancing, but dancing on your own, you're dancing together with other people in the same room. And I think almost everybody would recognize that doing things together makes them more powerful and more immersive. Yeah, and it reminds me too of um, even within traditions of solitude, say in Christianity, in other traditions where monks might go into the desert or people might become hermits, anchorites, um, there's still um, a collective element in the solitariness, um, you know, so that you went to be a hermit in a group of hermits or you became a Carthusian and you met for corporate prayer as well as your own individual prayer. Hmm. Um, and there's something about that movement between the two which is really important. One feeds the other. Um, it's just they can't be sort of prized apart. Yes. Um, even in, uh, there's a, at the beginning of Also Sprach Zarathustra by Nietzsche, hmm. um, he has, um, Zarathustra coming down from the mountain. Um, lamenting the fact that he couldn't be on his own. He needs a friend to be on his own. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that moment, that the idea that actually um, uh, there's something about being with others that enables one's uh, capacity to be alone, but also being alone enables you to be with others too. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's, there's a the very sort of powerful movement that goes on between them. Mm. So someone who's trying to pursue their own individual religious path these days is well, maybe giving themselves a lot more problems than they need to, and, you know, as well as missing out on something, too. Hmm. Um, I guess people would think that um, they'd worry that uh, um, where they're going to find this common prayer or meditation um, and that's accessible to them um, and that and they can understand. And um, I, I think we've mentioned this before, but the idea of... Um, something that's shared needn't be just where other people are actually there, um, but they can be places where people have gathered and do gather um, individually, um, but over a kind of sustained period of time. And they're sort of collective places. Sometimes people talk about thin places where it feels that heaven and earth are close together, um, you know, in old churches, in monasteries, uh, by wells, springs. But in a way, they're kind of collective places too, I suppose you could think of them as, aren't they? Where people have gathered, where they do gather, both Mm. diachronically and sort of synchronically across time. And there's something powerful about that experience too. What's the T.S. Eliot line about um, a place which has been made valid by prayer? I think it is something like that. Mm. Um, That that sort of sense of collective, common, shared experience too. Yes, that's a good point, because they don't necessarily have to be there at the same time as you, the other people. But certainly if you go into a cathedral and you pray and light a candle, then you're in a situation where many others have done the same thing. There's a sense of not being just an isolated individual on your own. Um, Another way, of course, is that people sometimes do this without necessarily going to sacred places, doing it at home. And a, a traditional form in, in many families, probably in the 19th century in England, most families would be saying grace together before meals. And this still happens in things like Cambridge colleges where a gong sounds and everyone stands up and someone reads a long 
Latin grace. Um, but there's, even though it can seem somewhat perfunctory and formalized, it's a period when everyone has a space before starting talking in the meal and eating the meal of a, an opportunity to give thanks or to be grateful together and, and to come together in a moment of um, however formal and um, this uh, moment of, of thanksgiving or at least pause. Um, and in, in some families today, this is a common practice. You know, here in our family, we often say grace or we hold hands around the table before we eat. And this pre- creates kind of space, a pause before eating when we can come together in silence. Um, it, ma- it, it makes me think about just the power of, of coming together with a certain intention. It can be quite a simple intention just to pause before a meal, like you're saying. But there's a, there's a, there's a great focus in that immediately, isn't there? Mm. Um, rather than just being together in a sort of rather ad hoc kind of unformed way. Um, I mean, I work as a therapist and, um, group therapies, uh, I think part of their power is, uh, um, just the fact that people come together with a particular kind of intention, you know, maybe just to listen to others, to bring their own, uh, sense of feelings, uh, their hurts, their, their problems. Um, in a way, quite simple. We carry these things around with us a lot of the time, but to come together with an intention to do that, um, mm. Not just that it actually can be very helpful, but that quite quickly, almost like another dimension of experience can open up before you. It was mm. there all along, but in a way, because you hadn't looked, you didn't have the um, the intention to do so. Mm. It just was sort of missed. Mm. Um, a lot of the group therapies, I think, um, you know, people can come to a workshop for a weekend and um, have the sense that something which, um, you know, they hadn't quite realized for years was suddenly shown to them. And maybe it's nothing more sophisticated than just the fact that the group enables them through the intention to look and see what, in a way, had been following them all along. Hmm. Um, that'd be another sense in which uh, the common is very powerful. It's interesting too, isn't it, that uh, among card-carrying atheists, there's an attempt to reinvent this with Sunday assemblies. And, uh, you know, I think Alain de Botton's book, Religion for Atheists, uh, goes through a number of ways in which atheists can recapture this sense of doing things in common. And there's this growing movement of um, reinventing sort of churches for non-churchgoers um, by collecting together on Sundays or on other days, but principally on Sundays. So it, this must express a need that many people feel that goes over and above the particular doctrines of any particular religion, this, this need to share and do things together. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm quite friendly with Pippa Evans, who runs the church assembly, and um, my sense from her is that there's um, there's quite a spread, actually, of um, reasons why people want to get together in that way. But I think for her, an important part of it is, um, in the first sense, is a kind of ethical dimension. Um, these aren't her words, but I've um, heard her speak and heard her to be saying that a kind of gift economy is really important for um, what they're trying to achieve with the Sunday Assembly or what they're trying to experiment with with the Sunday Assembly. And that is the idea that people come together sort of freely. Um, you know, they, they li- literally don't pay money to come together. And that a sense of collected collectedness, um, offering yourself and also receiving from others, again, is another sense in which uh, 
um, the common expression is very powerful and important. And um, I think it's one of the differences, perhaps, between what's happening with the Sunday Assembly and what's happening with, say, um, Alain de Botton's suggestions, which are much more about where you pay to go along to somewhere, mm. um, which, of course, has a value because it means that you get a sort of you get sort of value for money, you might say. It's, it's, mm. it's thought through and it's well put together and so on. Um, but there's something about the throneness of the Sunday Assembly, which I rather like, actually. Um, this sense of it's just gratuitous. We're going to come together. We're going to sing songs. We're going to hear a poem. We're going to think about others, um, you know, and the impact of our lives on others. Um, and that is quite liberating. Well, it sounds like reinventing churches. Well, it is. I think that's quite self-consciously so. Yes, yes, yes. because after all, you don't pay to go to church, do you? There's a collection, but you don't have to give anything. It's, it is seriously voluntary, and you certainly don't have to pay to go in. And so, in a sense, they've just reinvented that. Um, and that's a great strength of, of, of churches, that you go, you don't pay to go in as you pay to go to a cinema or a theatre or to a workshop. Yeah. Um, but I think if we, if we look at the, uh, our English tradition in the Book of Common Prayer, um, where there are these prayers that people say together, I mean, every tradition has prayers that are said together, sometimes where everyone's saying the same prayer, like everyone says the Lord's Prayer together, sometimes where a priest or someone leading the service will say a prayer on behalf of everybody else. Um, one of the points of that, presumably, is that there's a kind of collective intention set by these prayers. They're prayers uh, often about other people or about the group, you know, asking for God's help or guidance or asking intercessions for other people, people who are sick to get better, people who are bereaved to be helped and comforted, um, for peace in the world, for governments to do their job properly. Um, many of them are about intentions uh, which we all share. I mean, all of us want governments to do their job properly and, and to be just and fair in the way they deal with people. Um, most people want there to be peace rather than war. Uh, most people want the downtrodden and, and, the, and the poor and the oppressed to be helped. Um, so these prayers set common intentions and common goals, which in a way are more powerful through being shared with other people than if it's just an individual whim or wish um, that other people may or may not share. It's much more powerful when they're shared. Yeah, and it also makes me think, um, as you were talking about the practice of saying common prayers, like, say, the Lord's Prayer, um, over years, um, it reminded me of a friend of mine who's looking after an, uh, her elderly mother, and she says evening prayer every day with her elderly mother, and her elderly mother is quite lost for most of the day to dementia, but the one thing which she does say every day still is the Lord's Prayer. She joins in with the Lord's Prayer um, mm. during evening prayer. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's a very moving sense of connection for her and her mother, I think. Um, but also, um, it speaks somehow of this collectiveness actually um, is about being in touch with a very deep part of ourselves, which is collective. Mm. You know, we're not actually islands. We're not individuals. Mm. Um, there's a, perhaps a part of our consciousness, perhaps often we're hardly aware of it, which is collective. And when I heard this friend talking about 
her mother saying the Lord's Prayer and how it seemed to come out of nowhere, the Lord's Prayer, because she couldn't really speak otherwise. And it was almost like there's still a deep part of her, which is part of her, our collective consciousness, you might say, to use mm. Jung's phrase. Um, and uh, that both helps her with her mother um, in terms of care, but speaks, you know, quite profoundly and mystically almost to how common prayer is important because it's addressing the common shared part of ourselves, our collective, our consciousness is not our own, mm. you know, so prayer would reflect that as much as anything else. Mm. Also, of course, if there are prayers that, if the prayers have been used for a long time, like the prayers in the Book of Common Prayer have been, there's also this memory dimension, what I'd call morphic resonance, that um, by saying the same prayers or by taking part in them, um, the same words that have been used for many generations, there's a kind of collective memory and a collective experience that's not just the people in that building at the present time but all those who've taken part in it before. It, uh, you're sharing with a much wider community that includes not just the living, but the departed. So um, that puts these prayers, again, in an even bigger context, a context of not just living, but dead or departed. Yes, yeah, so one has a sense of um, being connected to the past, the continuity, how, in a way, the dead still live in us, Yes. Our life is part of a flow, that kind of element. Yes. Yeah, that the prayers make that explicit. Yes. Um, which is an implicit part of our sense of being alive, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting that in some non-conformist traditions, there's a, a, a stronger emphasis on improvisational prayer. I mean, in, in the Church of England, we have that to some extent. We have set prayers in the Book of Common Prayer or in modern versions of the prayer book. There's also intercessions which are led by people, usually in services, where they can improvise to some degree. But in some non-conformist churches, many of the prayers are improvised. Somebody will lead the prayer not following a fixed form. But that's another way of doing common prayer. It has the benefit of immediacy in the sense that it's new and fresh and you don't think, oh, I've heard all this before. And and so, if you've heard it all before, you can zone out and um, more easily, perhaps. Um, but it do, it lacks that that resonance of of something that's happened. So, I mean, it has an advantage and a disadvantage. And what do you think of that? Yeah, well, I suppose that part of the concern in nonconformist traditions, or even say evangelical circles, would be that the prayers are dead because they're fixed words or they're said by the priest, mm. um, that they're not shared. That would be the fear, I guess. Um, and certainly, you know, when religion becomes dead and formulaic and not alive, that mm. you can see how that definitely happens. Um, but my experience, I guess, of um, certainly more charismatic circles would be that it's very noticeable how quickly certain extemporary prayers become favourites. <laughs> mm. And so they are repeated. Um, mm. Lord, we just want to, you know, little phrases mm. start to emerge. But also, I'm thinking in the music, I um, mean, in choruses, and um, both uh, certain choruses become favourites because they must capture something that everybody um, experiences through the music. It's a shared um, thing that the music's capturing. Um, but also, of course, you know, choruses and things are repeated. Um, you know, they they they'll be sung many times. Yes. Uh, mantra-like, you might say. Yes. Um, and that's another way in which I suppose the collective keeps pushing its way back through, you know, even in um, more individualistic, you might say, 
uh, notions of what it is to be religious and valuing the sense of my individual relationship with God, um, the collective um, will make its presence felt. Well, I think singing together is obviously extremely powerful. I mean, there can't be any culture in the world where there aren't forms in which people sing together. And it's one of the most unifying ways. And if it's, if they're songs that are hymns or psalms or addressed to God or, or prayers, then this gives, this common dimension of singing is, is something that's extremely engaging. And of course, in the Christian tradition, we have hymns as well as psalms, um, which are a regular part of many people's um, spiritual or religious practice. Um, I was very interested by an interview with Michael Evis, the owner and founder of the Glastonbury Festival, um, that was published in The Guardian. Um, and he was asked... You know, what's his ongoing source of inspiration? Michael Evers is rather improbably a Methodist, and he's a regular worshipper in the uh, Pilton Methodist Chapel, which is where the Glastonbury Festival happens in Pilton. That's where his farm is. Um, and he said that one of the things that's a continual inspiration for him is singing the hymns of Charles Wesley every Sunday. And it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Here's a man who's... Uh, kept going one of the biggest festivals, the most iconic of all the English summer festivals, um, about music, about celebration together, about community. And his daily experience, his weekly experience, and where it's coming out of, is his family's Methodist tradition, which is not just something in the past, it's something he still does. And, and, um, and, and that singing together is the kind of grand on which this vast festival of collective celebration is is somehow in his own life based. I wonder what would um, what many of the Glastonbury Festival girls would make of it if they knew that they were secret Methodists. <laughs> well, it's not that secret. I mean, yeah. in, in Pelton Village, it's quite. I have a nephew who lives there, and it's quite, everybody knows the Evises are, are um, you know, Methodists. And um, when I looked at the village. The parish magazine last time I was there, there was a thing, you know, coffee morning on Tuesday uh, at Mrs. Evis's. And, you know, it's just part of village life that um, it's completely explicit. Yeah. And I guess hymns, hymns being sung at football matches, Abide With Me, Camronda. Yes. Um, it's, it, it sort of spills over, doesn't it? Yes. Into secular forms. Yes. Yeah. Well... Maybe we'll finish it there, um, but I, I, I think that, that this it, it, it reinforces for me this sense that the common dimension is really important, actually, and that to try and find common practices um, for oneself with others is really vital. Exactly, fact. and and the, we we have them in traditional forms. Every culture has them in their traditional form, and then they're continually being reinvented. And in a sense, this the popularity of festivals here in England is. It's reinventing the sense of collective celebration. A festival is nothing if you, you can't do it on your own. You have to do it with other people. And in a sense, that's coming together with a common intention. Um, in the case of Glastonbury, a kind of vaguely environmental intention, because the Greenpeace is one of the main sponsors or beneficiaries. Um, but this common vision, which is made more powerful by being shared... I completely agree. Thanks very much, Rupert. Thank you.